Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network headquarters, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line in Hot Springs Village, Arkansas. And today we are here to uh, talk about what to do when things really go wrong, uh, and when they really go wrong from a medical and a health perspective. I have uh, two guests waiting to come on the line here in just a minute. They are Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. They are awesome. Uh, Dr. Bones is a physician and Nurse Amy a nurse practitioner. Uh, I think they're in kind of a semi-retired state. We'll talk to them a little bit about that. But uh, they've put together a show called The Doom and Bloom Show. Uh, and we're going to be talking about today, you know, emergency medicine and collapse medicine and the difference between the two and the things you need to do to be prepared to deal with uh, injury, illness, etc. in absence of help from uh, conventional emergency services and conventional medical services. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do an awful lot to help take care of you, making sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today is Jeff, the Berkey Guy. Now, what will you get from the Berkey Guy? Well, if you go to his website at directive21.com, what you're going to get from the Berkey Guy, shockingly enough, is Berkey water filtration systems. And why should you get your Berkey system from the Berkey Guy? Well, hell, he's the Berkey Guy. Who else would you go to? Seriously, though, he provides excellent service, some of the best pricing available on Berkey items. And he's a supporter of the Member Support Brigade, too, uh, offering uh, some free stuff when you place orders over 100 bucks. So he's a great guy to deal with. And you'll find Berkey systems. If you have questions about water filtration, he'll be happy to answer them for you and make sure you get what's right for you. And he has some other really great uh, preparedness items at his website, again, directive21.com. Water is so important. It's imp- it's very, very important that we make sure we have a way to purify it in a, in a long-term uh, situation or just to make sure our water day-to-day is the best quality water we can be drinking. We'll be talking a lot about water today and its impact on health, especially in a collapse situation with Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. You might even feel more compelled then to make a Berkey something eventually you want to add to your preps. Next up today, ShelfReliance.com. Uh, notice I said Shelf Reliance, like you put stuff on a shelf, not self like your individual self. Though they will help you be self-reliant because they are innovators in the food storage industry, providing the most efficient and coolest food storage racks I've ever seen, allowing you to eat what you store and store with you, what you eat with an automatic rotating system, uh, a system with a very small footprint, really, that allows you to hold about 700 pounds of food uh, in, in a canned food environment and constantly be rotating your stocks and keeping a very simple ongoing inventory. I have that Harvest 72 in my home. It's something you may want to consider for yourself. But let's say you don't have room for it or your storage is not that level or you don't do that much with canned goods. Well, then they have smaller systems, the Consolidator uh, Pantry, the Pantry Plus, and the Cupboard. Uh, and it's, it's ridiculous how much food those little things will hold as well. When If you watch the video I did on it, when I, when I empty them out, you're just like, where did all this food come from? Additionally, additionally self-shelf reliance uh, provides the Thrive brand of long-term storage foods. Uh, some of the best-tasting long-term storage food I've ever eaten. Uh, there's nothing they make that I wouldn't be happy to eat for dinner on any given 
given day, not just in a long-term situation where you need food stored up. All right, next up, remember, connect with me, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. You can do all that at the website, along with visiting our gear shop for some cool stuff there, including the new cool power cord stuff that we have in. Uh, we, you know, we have a whole uh, uh, classification of stuff in the gear shop. It's called 4TSP by TSP, and that means that the items are handmade by members of the TSP audience and the TSP forum for the TSP community. So when you go to the gear shop, check that out, 4TSP by TSP. Uh, last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members, and you're supporting the show at about 20 cents an episode. And with that, let's go ahead and introduce our guests. All right, folks, as I said during the introduction segment, we have uh, two special guests today. I'm going to introduce them as Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Uh, who are they? Well, Dr. Bones was a practicing board-certified fellow of the American College of Obstetristic, I can't even pronounce that word. How do we say that, Dr. Bones? Obstetrics. Obstetrics and gynecology, as well as a fellow of the American College of Surgeons for many years. Uh, he recently retired. Dr. Bones is drawing from his experience with many hurricanes that plague his part of the country, which I believe is Florida, to put together a medical strategy for those who find themselves in a collapse situation. Uh, his wife, Nurse Amy, is a certified nurse midwife, an advanced registered nurse practitioner for many years. Also recently retired, Nurse Amy has devoted herself to urban homesteading with an emphasis on growing food and relearning skills that are no longer commonly seen in a modern setting. And these guys have like a ton of stuff that just make them really affiliated with one. They're podcasters and they've been doing uh, a podcast on preparedness and the medical aspect, specifically preparedness. They had me on as a guest not long ago. I wanted to have them back on their history buffs. They were telling me about some of their history books. We'll probably talk a little bit about that today. They've got some books that were published in like 83, and by that they mean like 1883. Just great folks involved with gardening, aquaculture, medical preparedness. Hey, uh, Dr. Bones, Nurse Amy, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, thanks for having us on. Hey! And uh, you guys have a podcast of your own. It's called the Doom and Bloom Podcast, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the Doom and Bloom. I like that because there's the Doom and there's the Bloom. Uh, you know, right off the bat, we can tell people where they can find your podcast at. Uh, simple, doomandbloom.net. And we're on the uh, Prepper Podcast Radio Network every Thursday night live at uh, 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 Central. Uh, and you can reach us by going to prepperpodcast.com. Yes, and I will always post a link to the podcast, which is just real easy to click on. If you just go to the doomandbloom.net, I'll always put a little show description and a simple link for you to push to listen to the show. Very cool. And that goes across uh, Blog Talk Radio, right? Yes, it does. And a few other and a few other uh, servers. and Right, exactly. <laughs> okay, cool. Cool. Well, obviously, you guys have this huge medical background. We've got a, a, a not just a... Uh, a, a nurse, but a nurse practitioner and a doctor here. So clearly that's kind of where you guys come from, along with all the other prepping stuff. But I wanted to have you on for that medical knowledge today. And I guess my first question that I want to ask you, and you guys figure out on your end who's going to answer these as they go or chip, chip in where you want to, but what do you think the average person who is relatively well prepared, what do you think are maybe the biggest holes in their medical aspect of preparedness? Well, with regards to a collapse situation, it's, I think, the, the difference between knowing what survival medicine is and collapse medicine. 
you know, survival medicine is treatment that you render in a situation where standard medical care is not readily available. Now, I would consider this to include a medical care that's rendered during wilderness hikes or ocean voyages or trips to undeveloped countries. You know, there are doctors, there are hospitals, but not at the time and place that the medical care is required. But the primary goal of this and most survival medical training is the evacuation of the ill and injured individual to a modern medical facility. What happens in a collapse when there are no longer modern medical facilities? That's what I call collapse medicine. In a societal collapse, there is not only no access, but there may be no hope of accessing such care in the foreseeable future. You know, So therefore, what that means is the buck is going to stop with the people in your group, in your family. And so this fact leads us to make adjustments in our strategy if we're going to keep our family and our loved ones healthy. What happens when you're at the end of the line? And these are the kinds of strategies that we're trying to put together for preppers today. And, I mean, when you look at that, so to me that means that we need to have not just supplies and training, but a mindset toward a, a greater longevity of treatment. Absolutely. You know, uh, uh, we started off with hurricane preparedness, and there's actually a hurricane coming uh, <laughs> in our general direction right now, so that certainly comes in handy. But what happens when you're, the power's down for more than just a few days or even a few weeks? What happens when food is no longer being delivered? Yeah, you have to have a strategy for what to do. For example, in your medical supplies, you wouldn't think of having a uh, let's say, um, oh, a dental extractor, a forceps, yeah, or an instrument that helps you extract teeth, right? Because, well, I mean, in a few, if, in a, if a hurricane comes in a few weeks, power is going to be back on, society is going to be back to normal. But what happens in a societal collapse when that's not going to happen? Then that dental extractor is going to be one of the most important medical supplies that you're going to have. Okay, help me out with that now, because how do we perform a dental extraction uh, absent of any type of uh, of a sedative? I mean, we're talking about an extremely painful procedure here. Oh, well, you know, you know what? There are natural remedies that are excellent for that. There's something called oil of cloves. Oil of cloves. It's a natural essential oil. It's uh, that has something called eugenol in it, and it's a natural anesthetic, and you can apply it to areas uh, to diseased teeth. And this, along with a Swiss Army knife and this dental extractor, is actually perfect for removing a tooth. And on some of our shows, we actually have discussed how to do so. If you would like in, to see... In, in incredibly gory detail, I might add. <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't have to be incredibly gory. As a matter of fact, if you'd like to see this on YouTube, just go to Dental Extraction at Mount Everest Base Camp. If you look up dental extraction at Mount Everest Base Camp, you can actually see it being done exactly as I mentioned it within just a very few uh, It takes just a few minutes to do. And you want to know something? Most dental emergencies, most dental emergencies can be handled, I'd say more than 90% of them, by extraction. Now, that's different from what's going on now. I mean, now, of course, we want to save every tooth. Sure. But that's a brand new, believe it or not, that sounds weird, but that's a brand new philosophy. In the old days, and when I mean the old days, I'm talking about 50 years ago, not Roman times, 
they treated almost all dental issues, major dental issues, with extraction. And so it will be in a collapse situation. And just to be clear to everybody out there, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy are not advising you to start extracting your family's <laughs> Swiss Army knives and a, and a dental extractor today. This yeah. is an eventual reality that we may and hopefully won't, but may sometime have to face. So that, that's, a, that's a unique thing there. Um, what are some other things that you would you'd say maybe not typically thought of? Because, yeah, I, I mean, like I took combat lifesaver training in the military, and everything we did was – Basically a triage. Does this dude have any chance to make it or not? If he does, what can I do to make him make it until the helicopter gets here to extract him, uh, help the next guy, and keep shooting back so I don't get killed while I'm doing this? And that was it. So the guy's a sucking chest room. You wrap him in a poncho, try to seal it off, and, and somebody's got to extract him. In the types of situations you're talking about, the helicopter's not coming, relief's not coming, and duration is, is relative as well, isn't it? Because, like, if I have uh, an injured knee... Uh, long duration without treatment might be measured in weeks or months, but if I have a hole in my chest, duration, long duration becomes relatively short term. So what are some other things, you know, with that in mind? Well, you know, some of these things that, uh, that could occur in a, in a collapse, when you're talking about gunshot wounds, we have to go back to the way medicine was a hundred years ago or, or longer. I mean, look at the survival rates. Uh, in the Civil War from, uh, abdominal or chest wounds. I mean, you had about, if you had a, if you were shot in the torso, you had about a two-thirds chance that you would not survive that, survive that wound. And that could easily be the case, and we have to understand that the way we triage patients in a future, uh, collapse is going to be different and we're going to have to be more realistic in what we can do for people. Now with regards to that particular patient with the ch with sucking chest wound, you can it can be easily blocked off and you can hope that your patient will wall off that injury and recover. But the chances that he'll do that are going to be much less than of course in a modern situation. And by the way, when I start talking about all these uh all these issues, we, we do always do disclaimers that indicate that every strategy that we offer you is to be used only in a post-apocalyptic setting. Now, for goodness sake, if, if you need a brain transplant and there's a hospital <laughs> and, a, and a brain surgeon nearby, don't try to do it yourself. Very cool. And I think another thing about like a future collapse situation with, with, with bullet wounds to me that I always think about is we look at survival rates on a Civil War battlefield. And that's one thing. But these guys were pitching mini balls at each other, traveling at about 800 to 1,000 feet per second. When we have a medical collapse, we won't have a centerfire rifle collapse at the same time. And the damage done by modern centerfire ammunition, 30 caliber, you know, 308 style ammunition, is much more severe in some ways than a larger caliber, slower moving, you know, mini ball or a round ball. So there's more damage being done today by modern firearms as well. Oh yeah, the cavitation is, is, is bigger. Now, of course, the mini balls would, uh, roll end over end pretty much almost as soon as they got out of the out of the barrel. And, and so they cause a great deal of damage. That's why you saw so many amputations. Of course, once, what, if you had an injury from, uh, from that kind of ammunition to an extremity, it almost always just shattered the bone. And, and required amputation. In, in our situation, 
we'll probably wind up having to do more amputations if we're no longer if we no longer have access to modern uh, medical facilities. I mean, people look at that as a brutal thing, but during the Civil War, like an amputation, that was state of the art medicine. If you did not do an amputation on someone in that situation within a very short period of time, that leg would become what we call gangrenous. It would, it would become infected, tissue would start dying, and essentially you would be rotting. I mean, it, it's as if that leg had become part of a cadaver or, or a corpse. And once that gets into your bloodstream, it just killed you. So it was either have uh, one less extremity or be dead, and you want to know something? People like to live. <laughs> yeah, I think most of us like to live. Um, but the other thing that killed a lot of people back then was infection, even during a uh, an amputation. And, of course, modern medicine has become heavily dependent on antibiotics. There's good in that. There's bad in that. Uh, going forward, one of our biggest risks, though, of course, with injuries, even if properly treated, long duration would be infection. So how do we address that uh, from that longer-term situation, three, six months without help? You know, there's a it's a, there's a basic principle to this that's going to help improve your chances of, of surviving, and that is to pay attention to sound sanitation practices. And if you can do that, if you can keep work on preventative medicine and work on sound sanitation practices, even if you're not a doctor, you're going to be able to deal with 90% of the issues that are going to occur. Uh, when we go back to the Civil War. We lost tens of thousands of soldiers, as as many to, uh, as many to did things like dysentery as we did to uh, to uh, traumatic injury. And so, anything that we can do to make sure that the water that we're drinking is uh, filtered and 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 is clean is going to greatly increase our chances of survival. Simple things like that. You don't have to be a physician to be able to improve the chances of of your group being successful uh, in a collapse situation. Uh, all, you, all you need, oh, I'm so sorry, Amy wants to say something. Go ahead. Yes, um, actually, the point that I would like to address is that before we had all this modern pharmaceutical medications that, that sit on the shelves, we, we turned to nature. You know, families that were in areas with, with no, even a midwife in the community, had relied on passing generations and generations of information to each other about what out in their their area could help them. And so we had a vast amount of knowledge about, say, willow bark that has aspirin properties and, and pain-relieving properties. And so we knew a lot about nature. And we've lost this because we've become reliant on this whole medical structure. And if that goes away, we don't have our grandparents or even great-grandparents to then re-educate us. So what we need to do now is to educate ourselves. What in nature can help us either prevent or fight, build up our own immunity systems to to fight infections? And, and there are many things in nature, honey, garlic, Golden uh, uh, grape seed extract. I mean, there are many, many natural remedies that may not exactly attack the virus or the bacteria, but they could enhance your own body. So, anything that you can learn 
from nature would help us succeed, you know, if there's no medical facilities. You know, Amy is absolutely right. Yeah, garlic uh, has uh, known antibiotic properties. Uh, honey also does. There's a lot of stuff that you that, that is out there just in the environment around you that could help you stay healthy uh, in in a, in a collapse. And also, if you gear some of your gardening, I mean, you want to produce food, of course, but if you gear some of your gardening to gardening to producing some of these medicinal herbs, then you also will have a steady supply of medicine. Medicine that's a take medicine care of. cabinet in nature. And I have planted over 70 different medicinal plants in my own backyard right now. I have them. You know, and you guys bring up a good point there because it's not even just the exotic stuff. It's not even really exotic, but we think of it as exotic because not everybody's familiar with like golden seals, ginseng, and stuff like that. I did a, a series on herbal actions, uh, you know, antibiotic, antimicrobial, uh, you know, all the different um, actions that we use to describe both medicines and herbal actions. And then I followed that up with a bunch of different herbs that met those criteria, that had those actions. And what I realized when I started doing this and I started researching basic culinary herbs that, you know, and I don't mean the dried up stuff in a little jar on your spice rack that's been sitting there for three years, but when you grow it in your backyard, when I started looking at things like basil, rosemary, parsley, all these basic herbs that everybody just cooks with all the time, there wasn't a single one of them that didn't have anti antiviral, antimicrobial, and antibacterial components to its essential oils and to its other components. And my reasoning was that if we start using this stuff fresh on a daily basis, instead of just acutely, we're actually constantly building that thing up. And I've got a doctor and a nurse practitioner here, so I'd like to bounce something off you that I've always said and get your medical opinion on it. There isn't a drug in the world that cures a disease. All they do is weaken the the infection or the, uh, the, the whatever it is, whether it's a, a virus or a microbe or a, a pathogen of any kind, weaken it sufficiently that at some point the body's immune system is capable of taking over and finishing the job. And if it was anything other than that, then people that are born with suppressed immune systems, you just give them drugs and they'd be fine. But those people are very, very susceptible even with drugs because the immune system can't kick in and do the rest of the job. So it's, it, everything we do should be about strengthening the immune system in the first place. You're, you are so incredibly right. Prevention is, is key. And things like chemotherapy, uh, that would be, and radiation are two of the only things that I would say actually kill cells. Unfortunately, they kill all your cells. They kill the good cells as well as the <laughs> they're, they're not particular about who they're killing. So those would be the only two things. But we certainly aren't going to do radiation and chemotherapy when we get a cold or bronchitis. So you're absolutely right. It is to weaken that so that your body can then fight. It's weakening the the enemy so that your army can go in there and win the battle. It's a tool. It's a tool. It's not going to be something that uh, is guaranteed. You can't always cure uh, an illness simply by giving, you know, a particular medicine or a particular herb, whether it's a commercially prepared or, or, or natural one. But your body, it, if it helps your body work to strengthen itself and to get over the, the, the illness itself, well, it's just another one of the tools that you, as the medical provider for your group, for your family in a collapse, should absolutely take advantage of. 
Very cool. And I mean, here's the question I get all the time. You know, the big three in uh, in preparedness: beans, bullets, and band aids. And on the band aids, it's a <laughs> hell of a lot more than just band aids. So I get the question all the time: what should be in our home medical kits? So what are some of the items that need to be there? And what are some of the items that you you think maybe the mo- people that go out and buy the prepared kit, you know, and I don't mean the crappy one, but a decent one, need to be supplementing that with to just get overlooked, other than dental extractors and a Swiss Army knife. Well, you know, it's important to accumulate uh, medical supplies and knowledge that will work in any collapse situation. But one thing that you have to think about is what are you actually expecting to happen? I mean, your preparation should be modified to match the situation that you believe will cause modern medical care uh, to be unavailable. You're going to need, of course, a series of medications uh, or either natural or commercially prepared. You're going to need pain relievers. You're going to need antibiotics, naturally or commercially prepared. You're going to need. You're going to have to determine what the special needs of your particular group is. Uh, you remember, kids have different medical issues than adults. Adults have different medical issues than the elderly. So, what special needs are you going to have to deal with? Uh, honestly, Jack, uh, we could spend about two hours going over that list and I would love to do that <laughs> but you would probably get bored with me reading it um could you give us like your top 10 items or something like that then oh, oh absolutely well top 10 well I would say number one wow I I think that you need bandages and and every single possible type of bandage you have triangular bandages you need four by four gauzes you need um, Non-stick, uh, large pads, adhesive even pads, even right. even sanitary napkins. You know uh, that women use uh, for their cycle or could be excellent pads uh, that would be good. You have to remember that in a collapse situation, people that don't chop wood normally, people that don't make fires, they're going to be doing these thing, all these things that they're just not used to. They're going to get cut. They're going to get burned. There's going to be all sorts of of stuff that's going to require dressings. So dressings, I think, is one of the most important things. Including an eye patch. I would include an eye patch. Right, eye patches, things like um, that. What, what is your opinion on Israeli battle dressings and quick clot? Awesome. Yeah, that was, my, that was awesome. the next thing awesome. on my list. Okay, yeah. cool. Uh, let's, go ahead, let's say, that, let's say that you're concerned about civil unrest. Obviously, you're going to have to know how to deal with traumatic injury. And so you're going to want things like the Israeli battle dressing, which is great because it's a pressure dressing. And that's that's the main thing when it comes to traumatic wounds, gunshot wounds, things like that. The first thing you're going to do is you're going to press on it. You have to put pressure on the wound to stop it from bleeding. Then you're going to put bandages on. Then you're going to press on it again. And then you're going to put more bandages on it and press on it again. So this does the job, uh, both jobs of sopping up blood and providing pressure. So the Israeli battle dressing, uh, which comes under various names now, is is a- actually awesome. Plus, quick clot, sea locks, all of these things yes. are are awesome. If they're go- they're going to be times we have them you- in different sizes. We have them in different strengths. Right <laughs> now, now one thing that you should uh, this is they are they are so awesome. I think that. I have I have uh, videos on YouTube that I can direct you to that will show you them taking a pig. Now they, you have to be a little can't be squeamish for this one, but they take a pig and they cut one of its major arteries. 
And then they sit there and watch it bleed for the next two or three minutes. And then they empty some sea locks into it and apply pressure and bleeding's done. So this is an absolute. If you're worried about civil unrest at any point in a collapse situation, you've got to have this stuff. Okay, so first, first, lots of bandages. Second, to stop the bleeding. Lots of that sea locks and quick clot. Um, then I think you would focus on pain relievers, natural, either herbal, essential oils, um, your Tylenols, your ibuprofens, uh, your aspirin. Yes. You have to remember if somebody in your, your group is a little older, they should be taking a baby aspirin every day. That's recommended by cardiologists if you go see a physician, but um, you know, that's the first thing you have to get in their mouth if they start complaining of chest pressure, a baby aspirin Those are right probably, away. Those probably the so, few things that, one of the few things you'll be able to do really other than CPR if somebody has right. a, a heart attack, I mean, of that's, course. In a, that's in, what people need to understand is there are going to be certain conditions, you know, you don't want to say it, but insulin-dependent diabetics and heart attacks, you know, and severe traumatic injuries that we're just not going to be able to save. There are just some people that aren't going to make it because there's not the hospital facility available. Yeah, that's what I call the moving dump truck. And what I mean by that right now is you're probably both great at what you do, but if I get hit by a 10-wheeler, uh, you guys are going to go, all I can do is clean up the mess. And right. The dump truck moves as, as, as collapses fall. Things that are relatively uh, treatable today become untreatable tomorrow. And we have to accept the fact that that can happen the same way that we accept the fact that I could be on my way home right now and a Mack truck with a couple tons of gravel on it, and I'm done. And, and there's just that's that becomes more real as support falls. I've also heard, like, the number one thing that kills people in, in a collapse, you know, like a regional collapse, is diarrhea. Yes. Yes, you're absolutely right. And Again, it's it's another civil war statistic. Right. And and people died from dysentery by as as often as they died by by gunshot wounds. Right. Now, now this is one very important thing to to recognize is that if you can't keep the conditions in your camp or your retreat or your home sanitary and you can't filter the water and keep the drinking water clean, you are going to absolutely have to deal with this in a collapse situation. And sometimes um, these things resolve on their own. Your immune system kicks in and, get, and you get better, but many times you don't. And so you may have to consider, and, and I would recommend for every prepper to have a supply and stockpile of even commercially prepared antibiotics, even if you're not into that type of thing, I really feel that it's important for everyone to have a stockpile of antibiotics. There was a, um, I think a History Channel uh, special called After Armageddon, and um, the father in the family of this uh, collapse scenario was uh, an EMT, and uh, he cut himself chopping wood, and he developed a condition called cellulitis, which is an inflammation, infection of the deep uh, tissue under the skin, uh, you commonly see with cuts, and went to his bloodstream. And because they were out of antibiotics, the, the medic for that community was out of antibiotics, the, 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 he died from something that could he very, very, very easily have been taken care of simply by, by using antibiotics. Now, I will say this, that 
the reason why my name is Dr. Bones and not my real name is because I say things that are many times against conventional medical wisdom. Of course, I'm very much into natural remedies and things like that. But also, I'm trying to figure out ways for people to have access to medications that they ordinarily wouldn't have. And ordinarily, you have to go to your doctor to get a prescription for antibiotics. But to prepare for a collapse, you're not going to get a 100 antibiotic pills from your physician. So what do you do? Well, in this circumstance, I tell people to go, and, and this is only for post-apocalyptic situa- situations, I tell people to go for certain veterinary antibiotics. Aquarium antibiotics, for example, have as their sole ingredient the antibiotics and that the antibiotic itself, and it is only the only is the only ingredient and it comes from the same batches of antibiotics that are made for human use. And it comes in the same dosage as well. Yeah. And this is one way that you can you can find these online, you can Google it online, you'll find them. And this is one way that anybody can have access to this medicine. I would also say that a lot of the, um, how would you call them, immigrant stores, I guess you would say, uh, that are highly uh, patronized by uh, uh, Hispanics uh, within the United States and a lot of the small communities and all, they're not supposed to, but in a lot of those situations you'll find things like penicillin, ethromycin, et cetera, on their shelves. Uh, It's there. It's there. It's available. If you go online and you look up things like uh, uh, one particular uh, antibiotic is called is penicillin. It's called fish pen, F-I-S-H hyphen pen, and it is basically it is penicillin. It is penicillin just like they would get give you if you needed penicillin. So anyone can actually access a, a, a stockpileable amount of antibiotics simply by going online and finding these. Domestic, they're they're not. You don't have to get them from Thailand. You don't have to get them even from Canada. You get them right from uh, the USA. Yeah, and I think another thing is that there's a lot of things that can be done naturally. Like when you mentioned the guy with the leg wound, uh, Kyle Christensen, uh, who's a, uh, a chiropractor but also an ND, um, suggested that in that very scenario, a, a drawing agent made from things like calendula and comfrey. Um, and, and, and made into a, a, a pliable uh, solve using something like beeswax would have done a tremendous amount to draw that very episode you're talking about. He was referencing as well, and that would draw a great deal of the infection out. So you have ways that you can acquire antibiotics, which is official off-the-record methodologies, and then ways that if they're not acquired, used up, or you don't have them, there's also natural remedies to these situations as well. So I think one of the biggest things people are lacking today isn't so much the stuff, but the knowledge of how to use the stuff. Oh, uh, yeah, I agree. I agree with that. What's uh, 100%. The only thing is that that's important to know is that a lot of these medications, if uh, the commercial medications are most commonly in twice a day and four times a day dosages. These things are, are standard for a grand, the grand majority mm-hmm. of the antibiotics that you'll find, you'll find today. But you have to have reference books. You have to have some kind of medical library, even if it's a, just a family medicine book, uh, so that you can have an idea of what the right medicine is for the right condition at the right time. I, I, we can't... PDR. Yeah, right. We can't tell you that Physician's it, oh, desk reference. Right, that that's one uh, that's one book that would be very useful. That would be very useful for that. 
It also shows you what the, the pills actually look like so you know what you actually have. Sure. Sure. So, and then like these things for the, 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 like the aquarium use and all, I guess there's, uh, dosage amounts listed on the packaging so you can convert that to what is a proper dose. Actually, yes. There, the, the truth is the capsules come as adult dose, adult dosages. Like they're 500 milligrams or 250 milligrams. The reason they are adult human dosages is because they're manufactured in human pharmaceutical manufacturers. Mm -hmm. They are strictly transferred in boxes over to these aquarium manufacturers, repackaged with a pretty little fish on it, and sent out to the stores. There are no manufacturers of fish dosage-related <laughs> antibiotics. Right. There's nothing, well. there's, nothing, there's nothing in these medicines, Jack, that are going to make your scales shiny or... Or make your fins longer. Right. I mean, they it's are not going to make my tail look good. They're they're human medications repackaged with a little little fish picture in front of them. I'm I'm sure your so, tail looks just fine, just uh, as it is. So Jack. they will match. <laughs> they'll come. They'll come in two fifty or five hundred, which is appropriate for you know different adults and depends on your, your right. Two fifty is is a, a child's dosage, I think, and five hundred is a standard. Well, it depends adult on what dosage. you weigh, but yeah. yes. What's the store's life on this stuff? I mean, in general, we know it's the same, but I mean, when we look at antibiotics, how long can we look at storing this stuff? Uh, not what the box says, because the box always lies and, and hedges its bet. And what are ways that we can extend that storage life? You know, it's funny that you mentioned that, but Dr. Bones wrote a really nice article for Survival Blog last year, actually last July. I think it was July 28th. And it was all about shelf life. So, honey, why don't you share some of that knowledge? Okay. He did intense research. Right. I, I wrote a, something called The Doctor's Thoughts on Antibiotics, uh, Expiration Dates, and Teotwaki. And you can look that up on, on his thing. But you can also look it up. At, I, I've written about it all sorts of places. We put it on our blog Yeah, also. you can find it on our blog. You'll find it in uh, uh, Dr. Prepper's uh, uh, Family Preparedness Handbook. We're writing, we wrote the medical chapter for that, and it'll, it'll, you'll find that also well, in the, coming out soon. the sure. 13th edition coming out. Um, basically, an, uh, expiration dates are really a bunch of hooey. Uh, the, <laughs> truth of the, the truth of the matter is expiration dates are purely the date at which a company, a pharmaceutical company, will guarantee that their dose, that their medicine is at 100% potency. Now, that means that after an expiration date, there's nothing that says that it, a medicine is, uh, suddenly becomes harmful or that it's suddenly ineffective 100%. And if these pill, if these medicines are in pill or capsule form, pill or capsule form, this is important, you can expect them to last for years and years beyond the expiration date. Even the U.S. government has decided that this is the case because they have put together a program called the Shelf Life Extension Plan. And they're doing this because they've accumulated so many of these medicines in FEMA, uh, and they've purchased so many of them, they've accum accumulated so many of them, they're becoming expired. And so they tested more than 30 or 40 medications, many of them antibiotics, and they found that these medicines were at full potency two to ten years after their expiration dates. And the ones that were two years after their expiration dates because they had only been expired for two years when they did the test. And so 
you can depend, if you, especially if you store them correctly in a dry, cool, dark place, you can expect your antibiotics or other pill capsule medications, pill or capsule medications, to last for years beyond the expiration date. As a matter of fact, the uh, with regards to Tamiflu, the antiviral medication, the U.S. government has officially put out a specific uh, okay authorization for you to use Tamiflu for swine flu or other pan- flu pandemics uh, for up to five years after their expiration dates. And that's the government hedging its bets and still telling you to use it for five years after its expiration date. Now, let's be clear. This is not liquids. This is not insulin. This is not anything that's been reconstituted like children's medicines. They don't last long. This is strictly powdered or capsules or pills. Yeah. Um, in fact, I have the actual copy of the study that was sent to me by a listener that you're talking about, the Shelf Life Extension Program, where the government basically said, we don't want to throw all this stuff away. And just a, a couple of the things cited in it, um, atropine uh, had an original shelf life of five years. Uh, the average shelf life, they've extended it by as five, ten years total uh, with, with 100% efficacy. Um, let me, uh, diazepam, uh, four years uh, stated, five years with the extension program, nine years total shelf life extended. So, I mean, this is a study that was done by the government. I, I actually think that maybe I've got the conspiracy hat on here. Maybe it was just hard to find for one reason or another. But I had Dr. Wilkie on, who's an emergency uh, emergency medical room physician. He's been doing that for 10 years. And he cited this, and he couldn't get a copy of it anymore. I found all types of references to it on uh, government websites, but I couldn't get the actual document. Some listener somewhere tracked it down. So it's almost like the pharmaceutical companies said, hey, guys, you know, this is all cool and it's all well that you guys are going to do this, but we'd appreciate it if maybe you didn't tell consumers this or something. But uh, I will publish a PDF of this uh, in conjunction with this episode so people can take a look at it. I don't know if you guys have that study. Or- awesome. We, have, we, we don't have a study because it was removed. Oh, actually, I saw the study. I shall send it to you, and, and I was you shall have it. I was an idiot for not printing yeah. it out when I saw it because the next week it was gone. Right, he saw it the second week of July last year, and when he went to write it, like July twenty sixth, twenty seventh, it was gone. Well, like you said, it, it's you have to have a special password to break in yeah, to you can, that you section. You can get to it, but now you need a special password. Yeah, you have to. Yeah. They want you to sign in and register, which, of course, they would not let us register. Means you have to be some kind you of... Somebody needs to file freedom of information on that thing because it's a public study conducted with public dollars, and there's nothing that needs to protect national yeah. security there. So I'll make it available, and they can tell me to take it down if they feel like it. <laughs> we'll see what happens there. So I'll send it to you guys as soon as we get off the, uh, off, off the air today. But, I mean, when I... When I couldn't find it, I was pretty angry about it. But, yeah, I, I've come to determine what you're saying is absolutely true, and it's what I've always speculated, but I never had any hard proof. My other thought was, with these medications, they don't become dangerous. Right. They either work or work less. The, right. the, the effectiveness of them declines over time, so that's not like I'm going to give it to you and now you're going to die. It's not like right. giving you an egg that's 12 years old, and you're, you know, it's disgusting and you're going to get salmonella or whatever. Yeah, the only thing I want to mention about that is there's a myth going around that's still perpetuated on many, many different prepper websites, and that's about um, tetracycline. And, honey, why don't you just mention yeah. why, what has changed about tetracycline that makes it not 
dangerous anymore because okay. everyone will tell you, oh, you have to throw your tetracycline away. It's not yeah, true the, anymore. Yeah, the the um, tetracycline was one of the very few medications that was in pillar capsule form years ago that would actually become toxic, I think, uh, to your kidneys if you took it if it was more than a year or so uh, expired. But they, they changed the preparation now, and this is no longer the case. And although I don't think tetracycline is, at this point, the best antibiotic for, you know, it's not the first General, antibiotic you not, should have. Right, it's not the first in, one you should purchase. Your, However, right, right. if you have it and you've purchased it in the past few years, it's not going to kill you. It's not going right. to kill your kidneys. Right. By the way, the first one I think that you, that people should have if they're not allergic to penicillin is is amoxicillin, which is uh, perfect for uh, use uh, in the cellulitis or you know infected cuts and burns and things like that. Amoxicillin. It's called fish mox. F i s h hyphen mox uh, in uh, in in aquarium antibiotics. Uh, the 500 milligram dose, I think, is called Fishmox Forte, which is just the Latin word for strong. And uh, this is, I think, a, a good first antibiotic to have uh, in place. A little bit more on the tetracycline myth-busting thing, too. Even when it was technically dangerous, I did some research into it, and I found out that there was exactly one person <laughs> that they could cite that, that, that you know conclusively was made ill by... Uh, expire tetracycline. One. Right. right. That's, not that's ten, all, not, that's not eleven, one. one. Right. <laughs> that's all it takes, Jack. You yeah. know, if, if, if people don't listen to anything else that we say during the show, if they can just get that in their heads, the tetracycline mm-hmm. isn't going to kill you when it yeah. passes expiration. I would be like so happy. Mm-hmm. Oh, another thing that I, I want to put on that list you're saying about what we should tell people to get is a, a suture kit. And I want to preference that with the fact that you should not be sewing up every laceration that occurs. You want to yeah, expand on that, honey? Yeah, that's true. You know, it, it, it's sort of like the Shakespearean thing, to stitch or not to stitch. That is the question. Uh, you've, got to deci- you've got to determine how clean an injury is. Now, for example, most gunshot wounds are not going to be clean wounds. You're going to have pieces of your clothing, you're going to have dirt. Uh, is going to be in a gunshot wound. So you're very rarely going to be stitching up a gunshot wound uh, because all you're going to do is you're going to stitch in bacteria. That's right. And so it's going to form a, a horrible infection, going to go right to your bloodstream. It's going to, ha- it's going to kill you more than the bullet itself would have. Right. You'll have more harm by, by walling up that bacteria. Yeah. Into the wound. Having said that, learning to suture is no big deal. And right. as a matter of fact, uh, in the next issue of Survivalist, I have an issue, an article on uh, suturing, and I think in the next one after that, I'm going to do a little lab on suturing uh, with photographs and and things like. You have to see my pretty hands, but uh, uh, that's about it. But I'll uh, want to do that because I really think that people should have at least a, a general idea of what is done to suture and you so can you can practice this you can practice this right without cutting your friend open you can get go to yeah. an asian market get some skin on pork and you can practice yeah. suturing that way that's what we've done with our our prepper group we did a little um workshop and we we bought that pig's feet for everybody and and we bought some extra suturing kits and and dr bones actually taught a group of people how to suture including some teenage girls 
Yeah, that's who right. Who were really good, actually. Oh, so, you know, sometimes a medic needs a medic. I know. So uh, the things to think about before you're going to close up a wound is, is one, how dirty is it? How clean can you get it before you want to close it up? How old is it? If this wound is older than six hours, you already have bacteria that's multiplying inside of that wound. Do not close it up because, again, you're just walling it up. Size. If it's longer than a quarter of an inch and it's less than six hours and it's not dirty, then you can go ahead and, and leave it open. If it's less than and close it up, it's, if it's more than. It also depends on where it is. If it's on an elbow, then it's better to, to close it up. Or right. a knee. Over a joint. Yeah, over a, over a movable joint. All these things, by the way, all this information you can find at doomandbloom.net. We have over a hundred articles on medical topics uh, that would pertain to a survival situation or or a collapse situation, and uh, really go over there. You're going to see a lot of this stuff explained in much more detail. Absolutely. We'll make sure we have links to all of your resources as well. I want to bust another myth today, though, and it, it doesn't sound like a metal top, medical topic, but it is because it's nutritional, and I've got two medical professionals here to help me with it today. And as much as you guys get frustrated with the tetracycline one, this one has me want to rip my brain through my ears. Every single time we talk about small livestock and we talk about rabbits, we have to have people freak out over rabbit starvation every single time. Now, a couple things with this. The, my, and you tell me anywhere I got this wrong. My understanding of rabbit starvation is that people that lived up in the mountains and could get no other source of food whatsoever that lived just off of rabbits didn't get enough fat and we could become ill and eventually even succumb to illness. But it's not from the rabbit. The rabbit's not poisoning you. It's the lack of fat. When we grow rabbit livestock, that rabbit has a hell of a lot more fat in its protein than a rabbit living off acorns in the middle of the mountain in the wintertime. So there's already more fat there. There's also the fact that if we were living uh, in a collapse situation, that was our primary source of protein, consuming things like the liver, the kidneys, etc. would give us additional fat. But if we're eating rabbit, even a lot, if we're eating anything else, the average American is not going to go and be poisoned by rabbit by not getting enough fat because there's plenty of fat in our diets right now. Right. You have to, I agree with you 100%. Oh, so do I. Yeah. A rabbit is, is, is such an excellent source of protein. And, and I would like, I really would challenge any of, of your listeners or, or our listeners to find one food that handles everything, that gives you everything that you no need. Such it, thing. It's, it's, you have to have more than one item on your diet, and maybe that's what they're talking about with regards to just eating rabbit. And I know about the rabbit starvation thing, but I personally think that you it's so important to have a source of protein. Right. These things are prolific. You can get, I think it's 300 pounds of rabbits from starting with one, well, well obviously. I mean, yeah, you two. Uh, obviously, <laughs> yeah. Over time. Wait, wait Amy, if you have a rabbit that reproduces by itself, I will want like 10 of them. That's just <laughs> awesome. <laughs> the permanently fertilized, well, you know, Monsanto may give us that one day. The, yeah, uh, oh, God. The permanently f uh, 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 fertilized female rabbit. Anyway, I'd like to, you guys have done a great job with that. I'd like to, like, <laughs> let people know, though, a little bit, some of the other stuff you guys do. 
um, because I want people to realize what a kindred spirit you guys are to our community here. Like, Amy, you're real big into gardening, and you're doing stuff with aquaculture now. Tell people about your tilapia, because there's another great source of protein and nutrition. And nutrition is important to us medically if we go into a collapse situation. Protein, Protein's harder to replace because you can't plant a protein seed in the ground and eat it. I guess a bean does that, but not not the way an animal protein does. So what are you doing with these tilapia? <laughs> well, I... I built a couple years ago a a pond, an above ground pond next to my pool because I was having my pool surface uh, resurfaced and tiled and whatnot. So I said, well, I have this empty corner over here, so I'll build a pond. So I kept some other fish in it. Uh, we raised bettas and we had some goldfish and filled it up with um, water lilies, which are real pretty. And then the liner, um, actually, nope, December, we decided let's get into tilapia. Let's use that pond and raise some tilapia. So we ordered um, 23 uh, purebred blue tilapia from a, from a breeder. Which are actually uh, legal to possess in Florida. There right. are some types of tilapia that are not. Okay. So they're legal. We don't want to break any laws here. And I put them in the pond by themselves. I took everything else out. Uh, the liner decided to split a couple weeks ago. And I had it made into a concrete pond. Well, I had these fish in a 50-gallon, and, and when the liner busted, a few of them died. I, I ended up with four. Well, I turned around one day in this 50-gallon tank, and there's about 200 tilapia fry, which are babies. And now they've stayed in the 50-gallon. I put the four remaining living adults back into my now concrete pond, and they've reproduced again. They like... um they like warm water, so if you're going to do um, aquaponics in a northern area, you need to keep them with a heater or in a climate-controlled, you know, you see some of these these places that raise tilapia in greenhouses, but you've got to keep the water warm. They don't produce any fry under 80 degrees, and they'll eat just about anything from right. greenery, duckweed, to any fish food right. we fry, we throw in there. Right. The awesome thing about uh, tilapia for us down here is that they're an exotic species, but they're not an invasive species. They're not eating up the native fish, and 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 the, it seems that the plants that they're eating are actually seem to be the invasive plants in the area. So this is an excellent source of excellent source of protein. They grow like they crazy. They grow really fast. And they produce. Like crazy. Right. And we still have, I mean, we had 200 babies and now we have 200, 200 fingerlings. More. So they are hardy. They don't just, yeah. they don't die. They're not fragile. That's for sure. Right. From four fish, I now have another 400 fish. And I can give people kind of a way that, like, you guys are in Florida, so you've got really a great climate for this. But people that live in a place where, like, okay, the winter I'm going to have to heat them or whatever, if you have a pond you can grow these things in, in a single season they grow to plate size. So you yeah. can let them grow to plate size, and in in the winter, like you said, you know, maybe a fifty hundred gallon tank inside the house, like a regular fish tank. Pick a few breeders, make sure you right. get some males and females. Bring them inside, and it, when the when the cold hits, everything that's big enough to uh, plate. When the cold hits and, and, and basically freezes them, net them up, fillet them, freeze them, smoke them, do whatever, yep. and then put your breeders back in your pond. And you can get a harvest every year. And to me, it's actually I, I'm, I'm putting in a greenhouse this fall, and I'm and I just put in a pond. It's going to hold about five thousand gallons of water, 
And I'm really thinking this is an easier way than aquaponics. So just let the fish grow, feed them what they need, and you know, harvest them once a year. I mean, I don't know if that's going to work out, but as I think about all the things of balancing an aquaponics system versus throw them in their cement pond like the Beverly Hillbillies and, and just <laughs> and just rock on, right? It's totally sustainable. Yeah, I mean, you know, your your considerations are filtration because these things will, um, how do I say, pollute your Lots water. Lots of waste. Rapidly. Lots of waste. Right. You need a, you need a filtration system for ten times the size of the water you have. I mean, the, the waste biggest my... possible filtration you can, unless you're going to use plants that will help absorb the waste. But the, the waste, by the way, if you can take some of that water with the fish waste and put it on in your garden, garden. and it will be an excellent source oh, of nutrients. Oh, fantastic. My plants plant. are so happy. Um, so, right, a large filtration system, you need aeration. They need a lot of aeration. You need a lot of air stones. You need water movement. You don't want stagnant water. So you need to put some pumps in the water on the bottom to circulate the water around. In your particular pond, about how much water are you holding with, with your fish? I have about five or six hundred gallons. Okay. It's not like it's not. It's like not your size. You, okay. enough, you might have enough surface area to to have good aeration naturally in your pond. It all it all depends on the the, the population too. The problem with bigger water is they make more tilapia. But you know what? If you if you don't get real attached to your babies, Nurse Amy, you know you can net some of them and just throw them right into the garden beds and let them flip around until they stop flipping. <laughs> And there's your nitrogen. So, I mean, you can control populations. And if you have, like, a uh, a pump that will pump from the bottom of your pond where all the waste goes, you yeah. pump that straight off. And um, the urban farming guys, what they're doing is a cyclone filter, which is like a three-stage filter, and the water just basically spins around real slowly in each chamber. And most of that stuff settles out to the bottom of the cyclone filters, and they just open it up, and there's your there's your fertilizer, too. So there's lots of ways to skin that cat. And uh, oh, yeah. tell us about some of the other things you guys are doing there. You guys have a pretty extensive garden as well? Yeah. Uh, not only do we have uh, – I've been trying to plant a lot of uh, perennials. So I've been – I've planted a macadamia, a cashew. I've planted um, – I've tried to get a lot of native plants so that I don't have to worry about them so much. So we're talking uh, muscadine grapes, uh, Suriname cherries. Uh, we have, of sure course, cane. we have sugar cane, which is an unusual thing. We have bananas mm -hmm. that are so easy. You just throw a banana plant around here and, you know, it just keeps going and going. Um, what else? I have artichokes. I have asparagus. Mm -hmm. I have um, pomegranates. And I have the big medicinal garden. We have different kinds of grapes, but uh, some of this is experimental, too. You know, you don't know if you're going to get something. I have very low-chill um, apples called Dorset apples, um, oranges. So, anyway, the outside have tried to build up perennials, so it's low-maintenance but good production. Inside we have cucumbers, oh, I also, melons. I'm sorry, I also have berries. I have blueberries, blackberries, raspberries, tayberries, <laughs> and gooseberries. How much oh, land do you guys have? Oh, my gosh, we're, we're in a... Suburban name. We're in a half acre, and it is. We have it planted in such a fashion <laughs> so that we get the maximum. Permaculture. Right. We get the maximum benefit from the smallest amount, and and the bottom line is just not. Don't be chained to your lawn. Yeah. Get be willing. Rid get rid of, of the grass. grass. Get rid of some of that grass. Oh, I have coffee. I have food. tea. Coffee and tea. Wow. 
Now, you have to remember, Jack, that all of this is oh, a an star ex- apple. This is an exper- <laughs> this is an experimental garden and there's some of these things are going to take and some of them might not. But that this is the time before things go bad for everyone to get through that learning curve to find out what will grow and find out what you're good at growing and right. things like that and 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 get that garden growing. If you can get that garden growing now, then you're going to have a head start if a collapse you got to learn your lessons now and basically what i would i would tell people don't just think about doing the raised garden beds with your um annuals it's a two-tier process you got to get in those perennials as fast as possible because some of them take a few years to give you good production and get them in now my blackberry bushes cost me two dollars and 95 cents well, I look in the grocery store and I see what a pint of blackberries are. If I can get one pint of blackberries, <laughs> I have just made back the cost of that plant. And I might get them for 15 years. Absolutely. You might get them for more than 15 years. Right. I mean, I, I can tell you that on my uh, my grandfather's property that I grew up learning all this stuff on, my dad's still picking blackberries from blackberry bushes that I picked from when I was a kid. That he, he was picking from when he was a kid. And my grandfather planted before either one of us were ever born. Right. Um, we have current bushes up there like that. This stuff lasts a long time, and uh, right. think about that plants reproduce themselves. So even if the initial plant you planted dies off, like a blackberry crown expands. Right. So it, it, it continues to reproduce itself. Fig sure. trees live a 1,000 years. Fig. I have six different varieties of fig trees. Now, the, awesome. reason, I, the mm. reason I buy different varieties, like the Suriname cherries, I have four different varieties, is because I don't know which one is going to be happy in my yard. You know, everyone has different soil. We have different climates. Check and see what your perennials do well in your area. Go to a local family um, uh, nursery. Don't go to these big nurseries. You know, I went to a big nursery, you know, home such and such, and they have blackberries. But the blackberries are, are from, I think it was like Canada or something. Like, it's gonna die. Why, why do this? So go to your local nurseries, talk to the families, the people who have been doing this for years, find out what grows in your yard, and start planting them. Then focus on the raised beds and learn all of those gardening lessons. But get those perennials in. I would say put more money into your perennials than, than your garden beds. I completely that, agree. That food is gonna be guaranteed once it's established to give you a harvest. And let me tell you, you put your potatoes in and something comes along and eats them or they rot, you're not going to have any food. Yeah, you get blight on potatoes and they're gone. And, yeah. and you can have them, it's just like they're just about to be ready, they're just about to set and blight hits and you're, and they just, and they're gone. And I mean, ask, ask an Irishman, he'll tell you about right. the potato famine. And I, I think the other thing that, that I, this makes me think of is I have a lot of people that ask me about, you know, seed banks for, for long-term uh, storage of seeds. That's fine. But if you're not, like you said, doing the work now to learn what works, and you if you want a seed bank just for when there's a collapse, then this is the seed bank you need. You need about 20 buckets and fill them up with all different types of dried beans. That way, when you can't grow any, at least you got something to eat because the whole concept you're going to pull out a tube of seeds and plant an acre crisis garden, once uh-huh. a collapse started, you're done. You're going to starve to death. Before That's the it. first seed sprouts, so you've yeah. got to do this stuff now. I completely agree with you. you and getting regional stuff, 
Like, you know, you said the blackberries came from Canada. Well, send a Canadian an orange tree from South Florida and see how that works out. So right. why would we expect that it would work the, uh, the other way around? So, like, one of the things I tell people, too, is not just what the local nurseries tell you will grow well and all, but go to wild areas around you. And we all have wild areas. And look what's growing naturally. If you have blackberries growing naturally, then a improved domestic variety of blackberry will do fairly well in your area. You already know that you have the right conditions for it. If you have amaranth growing, you know that's going to be a good grain crop for you, even though it's technically a seed. Uh, because growing oats or wheat, I mean, it's really difficult on any scale. But if you can grow, uh, you know, uh, amaranth and, 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 and quinoa and other things like that, But look at what's growing natively, and if you take the counterpart to that, you're probably going to have good results. Jack, I don't know if you know this, but Joe and I are both uh, master gardeners for the state of Florida. And I would really love to spend an hour with you talking about cover crops and, you know, the fact that you need to feed your soil. And it's more about feeding your soil and less about feeding the plants and what goes on under the ground that makes your plant healthier. Because just like making your body healthier for, for resistance to disease, if you give the plant what it needs, you're going to have less problems. And I think that's an important thing. People don't think about what's underneath the soil. They're just looking at the plant. Well, I told you folks that they were kindred spirits. Where have you heard that before? Feed the soil, not the plant. So I'll tell you what, we're about at the end of this, but I would love to book you guys to come back on. We'll look at the calendar. I'll get with you uh, sometime in September and bring you back on just to talk about gardening and uh, yeah. health care for the land, let's say. That's right. Uh, Jack, you know, we're going to meet you in uh, in uh, Denver. We're going to the conference. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, yeah, folks, yes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be at the Self-Reliance Expo in Denver. Is it the 18th and 19th or no. 17th and 16th 16th. 17th? Yeah, 16th and 17th. Yeah, we'll in, be there. We're going to have a booth also, and I hope you come over and do a little interview with us because we'll right, be we'll broadcasting. Be. Absolutely, I'll be there, and I'll be uh, I'll be uh, catching up with you guys while you're there. And folks, come meet us. Come meet us all. You know, come up there, meet me, meet uh, Doctor Bones, meet Nurse Amy, Jeff, the uh, Berkey guy is going to be there. In fact, yep. a lot of our sponsors are going to be there. So make sure you guys come to that. I'll put a link to the uh, the Expo website where you can learn more about it in today's show notes as well. But guys. Man, this has been one of the best interviews I've ever done. Thank you so Aww, much. Oh, we love you. Thank you. And I can't wait to meet you. I'm very excited. You and your nurse wife. Yeah, you can talk to her about getting her get on this microphone once in a while. You heard her talk to you before the show today. She's got a fine voice. There's nothing wrong with it. Aww. But she's, she's mic shy, I guess, when it goes on the public airways. But, uh, guys, again, thank you. And, and, again, tell everybody where they can find out more about you guys and get all your great resources. Doomandbloom.net. We also have a Twitter, it's at Prepper Show. Uh, we have a Facebook, which is Doctor, spell it out, uh, Bones, and the second name is Nurse Amy Show. <laughs> anyway, but the doomandbloom.net is where you can get all of the information. And I'll link off to your site and all of your social media connections in today's show notes as well. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko today, along with Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy, helping you figure out how to live that better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow.